what do epidurals, cognitive dissonance, talk of the homunculus, discussion about Michelle O'Donnell, and the symphony of hormones, and apple carts have in common? Well, they're all things that came up in one of the next three episodes in this outstanding conversation I was blessed to have with this outstanding person. Not sure who I'm talking about? Hang on, you'll find out soon. Are you a Christian woman yearning for a beautiful, joyful pregnancy and birth with a focus on God, not medical tests? Are you worried the birth you want isn't possible and you're tired of being treated like an accident waiting to happen? Hey mama, I'm Lori, host of Your Birth, God's Way. I'm a certified nurse midwife now, but I wasn't always. After working for nearly 20 years in the broken maternity system, I too was in your shoes wondering how I could have the birth I wanted and that I felt God meant for me to have. I found a secret that has actually been known since the beginning of time. God's way is the best way. Spoiler alert, God made us and our babies and he knows us best. He designed us perfectly for pregnancy, birth, and nourishing our babies after birth if we work with his design and not against it. In this podcast, you'll learn how to be healthy and have joy during this time of life that will be over before you know it. So if you're ready to reclaim your birth and your babies for his glory, go turn on a few episodes of Bluey for that little one on your hip so you can put the focus back on you for a few minutes with me. I am simply overjoyed to bring you today's episode. By now, if you've seen my social media, you know I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Stuart Fishbein, and today's episode is the first portion of that interview. We talked for nearly two hours, so it was simply too much for one episode. But that's good news for you because you won't have to wait until next week for a new episode. You'll get three again this week, kind of like the week of our circumcision discussion. Even with it broken up into three pieces, these episodes are still longer than my usual length, so just keep that in mind if you need to pause and come back. That's fine. Just don't forget to come back. So today's episode is largely Dr. Stu giving you a glimpse into his history for those of you who aren't familiar with him and him telling you a little bit about how he got from where he started to where he is today. I think you're going to really enjoy getting to know him, so let's not drag this out any longer. Let's jump right in. Guys, I am so excited today to have um, just one of the best OBs out there. You know that um, I'm not the biggest fan of a lot of doctors these days, but this one is doing it different, and he's helping midwives like me in ways that um, are just very noteworthy. I'm I'm honored to have him. Obviously, it's Dr. Stu Fishbein. I was blessed to meet Dr. Stu back in August at the Twins Breach Conference back in Louisville, and um, I shared a little bit with you guys about that when that happened. I've just I've been intrigued by so many of the things he shared on his show. Uh, one of the the best things that he really focuses on is if it is natural, you don't have to prove that natural is safe. You prove that the other thing that's interfering with the natural is safe and you go with the natural and that just resonates with me he talks about common sense evidence and data and how they all actually really truly work together so i'm going to read a quick bio about him and then we're going to get started so dr stuart j fishbein is a community-based practicing obstetrician and an associate of the american college of 
obstetrics and gynecology. We won't hold that against him. <laughs> He's a published author of the book, Fearless Pregnancy, Wisdom and Reassurance from a Doctor, Midwife and a Mom, which I have right here on my cart. In peer-reviewed papers, Home Birth with an Obstetrician, a series of 135 out-of-hospital births and breach birth at home, outcomes of 60 breach and 109 cephalic planned home and birth center births. After completing his residency at Cedar sinai Medical Center in in Los Angeles, California, Dr. Seuss spent 24 years assisting women with hospital birthing and for the last 13 years has been a home birth obstetrician who works directly with midwives. Dr. Stu travels around the world as a lecturer and advocate for reteaching breach and twin birth skills, respect for the normalcy of birth and honoring informed consent. Follow him on Instagram at Birthing Instincts and at the Birthing Instincts podcast with midwife Bliss Young as he offers hope, reassurance, and safe, honest, evidence-supported choices for those who understand pregnancy is a normal bodily function not to be feared. His website is www.birthinginstincts.com. And Dr. Sue, I'll tell you that I make reference to your show all the time. So that last part, all my listeners probably already knew about because I talk about your show quite frequently and use it um, kind of as a jumping point for, for some of our episodes. So just to get us started, um, kind of give us a quick snapshot of how you made that transition from the hospital part to the helping midwives and attending home births. Cause you know, home birth obstetrician, that's like a, and we call it a zebra and it's an anomaly. It doesn't happen. So tell us a little bit about that. Thank you, Lori. Uh, good morning uh, to you. Good evening. Uh, good I just want to, yeah, good middle of the night. See, you, you, you have all my favorite quotes. I've, I've heard your, I've listened to your podcast and you were talking about live baby in the bassinet last week with Anna. And it just, it was just fun to hear hear it come out of someone else's mouth. Uh, one correction on my uh, bio is that it says I'm a practicing OBGYN. I got to change that. I mean, I still do deliveries every now and then, but I'm not clinically practicing for the last year and a half. Uh, and being a member of the American College of OBGYN, even though uh, we all cringe, when, I mean, you cringed, uh, it's important. Because it's important to know what they're doing. And this way I get all their emails and their notices to physicians. And sometimes on the podcast, I'll go through some of the lunacy of the things that they're recommending. Like women getting five vaccines while they're pregnant. Uh, that you know, Things that they support, things they don't support. And, and how doctors often choose uh, and cherry pick their data. Which, which ACOG guidelines they're going to follow and which ones they're going to ignore. Uh, that sort of thing. My journey began like most other doctors did, and I'll, I'll try to keep it short because I do get long-winded. Um, I went to medical school at the University of Minnesota. That's where I'm from. And I matched, which is a thing that happens in the fourth year of medical school to all fourth-year medical students. They interview at different places. This is I find this really interesting because it's really what a, it's really truly a sliding door moment in your life. Um, you interview at med- uh, multiple different residencies where you might want to do your training. And the residencies interview a lot of different candidates and they all, it all gets thrown into a machine and it comes out on the, I think it's the third Wednesday of March that every fourth year medical student gets an envelope. It's called the match. And I ended up matching at Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. Um, I intended to go there for four years and get trained and come back to Minnesota, but that never happened because LA in the, in the early eighties was a wonderful place to live. Uh, the only thing that, that is better now from what I remember in, in the early 80s is that there's no smog or much less. Everything else is worse in <laughs> California. Um, 
And I came out very medicalized. Uh, I was very lucky because part of our training program was affiliated with LA County USC um, Women's Hospital. And it was the busiest hospital in the country in the early 80s. They were doing about 22,000 births a year, which breaks down to about 65 babies a day. And you're on every other day for about three or four months. So you can imagine that's, you know, that's 100, that's like 60 days you're on in four months. And every day you're seeing 65 deliveries. Now you're not doing all of them, but in 65 deliveries, you're going to have averagely at least two or three sets of breaches. I mean, sets of twins and two or three sets of breaches, not sets of breaches, but two or three breaches. Uh, so I got well-trained in something that was considered normal in those days. Uh, it was just a normal variation. As a matter of fact, we were very excited when a breach came in because we were fighting over who get, who got to take that that patient. Um, I came out of the training at Cedars, very well-educated, but very medicalized. I was the person that I sort of sometimes mock on the podcast now, the person wearing the hazmat suit. Uh, with a woman up in stirrups with her legs draped with blue drapes and prepping her uh, vulva with betadine, uh, having the baby come out and then immediately cutting the cord and showing the woman this beautiful thing that she just delivered and then walking across the room and setting it down in the warmer. So we did, just, you know, we did vag exams just because it was change of shift. Um, we didn't think twice about the things that have now come in clearly into play um, because of my exposure to midwifery. And my exposure to midwifery was was an accident, really. I was approached by midwives early in my uh, private practice to take their transports from home. And I said, sure. But I didn't say sure because midwifery was something that I thought was smarter and home birth. I probably thought, I, I don't remember, but I'm pretty sure I probably thought it was scary. Um, but I found during those transports that most of the women coming in were just needing an epidural and some pit usually because they were exhausted and a lot of them delivered vaginally. And I had a lot of time to sit around labor and delivery with the midwife in the lounge. We were talking and I'd learned about a whole different way of doing things. And it began to make sense to me. And I realized not too long after that I was an expert in medical problems. And I was really good at that. And I think most doctors are really good at that because, but they see pregnancy as a medical condition. ACOG even says in one of their guidelines or one of their clinical opinions on uh, it says pregnancy itself is a high risk condition, and that's like a sentence. And it's, it's um, if that's how doctors are trained, then that's how they think. But probably I'm just making this number up. But probably about eighty percent of women are, are don't have any problems, and they're not high risk. And yet that term is used to label people, and once you label people as high risk, um, the psyche becomes that they are high risk. They start to worry. They start to be concerned. And so I, I began to just hear just a different philosophy. And after about 10 years of backing these midwives, um, I decided um, on good advice from a friend of mine to start a collaborative practice with me and two midwives uh, in Ventura County, which was north of Los Angeles, because Cedars at that time did not allow midwives to have privileges. This hospital did. They were CNMs. And we had a really good practice going for 15 years. Uh, but we were never really accepted in the community because we were doing things that made the anesthesia department, the pediatric department, the nurses uncomfortable, like breech birth, like not giving hepatitis B vaccine to babies after they're born, uh, women wanting to go home four to six hours after they gave birth. Uh, these things upset the apple cart there, and we were f constantly fighting with the committees, uh, and eventually... For, for a, another long story, 
in 2010, I left hospital-based practice and went into home birth practice with um, no specific, specific midwife, but I worked with a lot of the midwives in Southern California and ended up assisting births uh, from the Mexican border all the way up to San Luis Obispo because I was the only one because of certain California laws that could do certain things like breaches and twins. And eventually I began to do type 1 diabetics and hypertensives too because I started to think differently. I started to not look at them as necessarily a problem if they aren't, if they're stable and if there's no problem. And I looked at the labor as something that, yeah, why do they have to labor in a hospital simply because they have this problem? Their labor isn't any different, but the, but again, you, the medical model is in a mindset that looks at everything as a problem and no diabetic can go past 38 weeks and hypertensives are greater risk of growth restriction. Yeah, they are. But if they don't develop it, then why can't they have the birth that they want? But they can't because they don't think out of their little box. Um, and so, you know, and then I started to teach and then I started to travel and and write and blog before when blogs was still a thing. And, and then I in 2013, I had a good friend of mine took me to breakfast one day. We were chatting and he said he got me all riled up and I started to get into one of my typical rants, which you may have heard. <laughs> And he said, Stu, we got to do a podcast because he, he was a radio talk show guy. So he he knew the business. And so he was my first co-host, Brian, and got me started in the podcasting business. And I find the podcast to be really cathartic for me because I get to get things out of me. And then I have this saintly goddess who's my co-host who, um, you know, keeps me calm and keeps me sane. And it's it's just a really nice combination. And uh, that's it. That's it. And so that's where, what I'm doing now. And then a year and a half ago, I decided I needed to take a break. I'd been on call, solo practice for myself for almost 40 years. And I needed a break because being on call was really starting to wear on my, me mentally and physically. And I, I bought an RV and I traveled from LA all the way to the Outer Banks, came through Tennessee um, and had a great trip and then drove all the way back. And then I realized I really didn't want to go back into clinical practice again. And so now I occasionally will do a birth when it, it fits the schedule. But being having a client who's pregnant means that you're sort of bound to that community for several weeks. And it's not easy for me because I do travel so much. And that's what I'm doing. And I'm teaching that, trying to teach hopefully doctors and residents, but mostly midwives now, and then and then moms and dads. Um, that that home birth is not scary, and it's it's actually in many ways for most women to be uh, have better outcomes, better satisfaction, better breastfeeding rates, less emotional trauma, less physical trauma, less likely to have interventions like an epidural or a cesarean section. Obviously, can't have those at home, but the transport rate is very low, especially for multips. A multip is a person who's had at least one baby vaginally. And primips have a slightly lower success rate, but still it's over 80%. And, you know, you know what C-section rates are in the United States right now. A woman walking to a hospital has a 25 to 35% chance. And some hospitals are even worse. A lot of little private hospitals have 40, 50% C-section rates. And in some countries around the world, it's 70% and more. And what is that doing? And, And again, the thought process in the medical model is never to think beyond the live baby in the bassinet scenario. I call it stage one thinking because, uh, and I'll give credit to Tom Sowell. He's an economist who's been a mentor of mine, not personally, but just his writings and 
and teachings um, where they never ask the question if, when they institute a policy or something of, of the question is, and then what? Now what happens? And I've in, when I give my breach talks around the country, I do a lecture on this and I go through all kinds of things that medicine has done that has been really stupid. Um, and sometimes they're still doing it. A lot of places are still doing the same things. And that's where that's where we're at right now. And the medical model is not succeeding. And if, by the way, they had really good outcomes, if they had uh, low C-section rates and if they had lower neonatal morbidity and mortality rates, and if they had higher satisfaction rates and less intervention rates, um, you could say, okay, the hospital is a great place to give birth. But for most women, they don't need that. And yet they get it anyway. I mean, a place like Cedars has a, a, a epidural rate of about 80%. Are you telling me that 80% of women can't deliver as, as nature intended? And the United States has an induction rate of 30 or 40%. One third of all women can't go into labor naturally. And of course, the C-section rate, we all know. So it's, it's just not even logical. If you stop to take a step back out of your little hamster wheel, you understand that you're in a hamster wheel and you need, and it's not the only way to do things. So that's my mission now is to go out and give people um, and, and give people evidence fully admitting that I have a bias. My colleagues in the medical model, um, everyone has a bias. It's just that we freely admit it, but giving uh, people evidence and, and evidence is only like evidence-based medicine is something everybody's heard of, but that doesn't mean anything has no meaning because it's only as good as the evidence that that's in evidence-based medicine. And if you have crappy evidence, then it doesn't. Then evidence-based medicine is is crap. Standard of care is another term that's thrown out there. But who decides what the standard of 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 care is? Well, they say whatever. What's the standard in your community? Well, is my community the ACOG and and the hospital down the block, or is my community midwives and home birthers? What's my community? What's my standard? I, I, again, you're held to a standard by people who don't understand what we do and see what I said, I get long winded. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop there, but that's, that's sort of my story. And, and obviously there's a lot of places I could fill in the blanks, but, but that's how I, uh, I got here and uh, never would have seen myself doing it. I thought that I knew everything about obstetrics when I came out, but I didn't, I knew a lot about sickness and problems but I didn't know how to do nothing. And the art of doing nothing is something that midwives have taught me. The art of sitting on your hands. You know, the, the old joke was that you need to know how to knit. Yep. <laughs> Doctors should know how to knit so they could just sit in a chair and knit yep. and not, not be so antsy to do stuff all the time. So okay. I don't know if you know, um, I don't remember if I've told you my story, but I was just as medicalized as you were because I went to normal nursing school um, where you learn all the bad things, very, very little of the normal. And of course we're learning how to manage the labor, how to increase the pit and decrease the pit and count the contractions and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, what's, what's, uh, well, as you say, category one, category two, what's that even mean? But, you know, we're learning all that. And then I went into the Navy where of course everything was medicalized, but I did work with some midwives there. Now they tended to be more medwives, but at least they had a touch of it. Um, but I still, I remember having a thought early in my career, um, of what did we do before epidurals? Like, did people like 
have baby like I mean it's but I guess it's the best because it's what we do now right and that was about the depth of my thought was well it must be better because we do it all now and so that's how I thought for many years and after I got out of the Navy um I was, <laughs> I was tired of working for corrupt people and, um, I didn't want to, I was, I was looking for something to do that I could do for myself as a nurse, which is hard to find a job like that. And I stumbled across this whole doula thing. Well, through my doula training, it was funny. My trainer used to, t- she would tell me I had just signed up or I just signed the contract for a new job in labor and delivery at a regular hospital. And she goes, you won't last six months. And she was right. Because once I learned what I learned in doula training, I was so mad. Um, I, I sat in the back of the room, just going like this the whole time, just throwing my hands up. Like I can't, I've been a part of all this. I was a, I was an accomplice. And through that process, then I went and got my master's to be a midwife. And, um, and, and, and even though as a CNN, CNN's not always, but they tend to be a little bit more medical, not always, obviously, but, um, I'm really more of a CPM at heart because I just respect the, um, the birth process when you leave it alone and in a hospital, it's, I really, I don't don't know that it's possible to have a truly natural birth in a hospital because there's just too much going on for your brain to be able to do what it needs to do. But, you know, you said about the, the mental toll of being on call, you are impacting more people this way because you're helping us know how to care for these moms everywhere. You can only be at one place, whereas we can be here and there and everywhere. And that helps so much because for example, I had a mom contact me a month or so ago who was a type one diabetic with the pump and all the monitoring and everything. And she was basically completely normal functionally because of the way that her insulin was now managed. And I told her about what I've heard you say, I would have never thought about it, but because of what you've taught, I then directed her how to try to find somebody. And I think I even told her, if you can't find somebody, call Dr. Sue, he might know somebody. And she's having a home birth now because of what you taught that I learned that then I, she contacted me, you know, it's just, it's this little network of people who are using their brains and, and, and trying to do things the way they should be done. And so one of the things, oh, wait, and, and wait, I, wait, before you, before you go on, can I just comment on that a little bit? Okay. So a couple of things. Um, first of all, the fear with diabetes is that, is that stillbirth. All right. But, but that's only a condition when your diabetes is poorly controlled. Right. And the stillbirth rate, even then is not that high. It's just higher. So, um, but it's, but, and then, and then if your blood sugars run high, there's a risk of the baby being large because baby sees a lot of mom's blood sugar. The baby's pancreas is working just fine. Baby puts out insulin. Insulin acts as a growth hormone, makes the baby bigger. So those are the concerns, but in a well-controlled diabetic, there's really no other, there's no, significant risk factors other than any other woman right. and diabetes now is not the same disease as it was 40 years ago because as you said they, they've got all the bells and whistles you know they've got they've got uh, implants in them they can look at their phone and know what their blood sugar is they can push a button and give themselves insulin so they can keep themselves in really pretty good control so it's a, it's a whole different process but it's a way of thinking it's it's thinking that that when you're in medical school you learn diabetes and pregnancy is high risk condition and this is how you manage it. It's an algorithm. Right. And it doesn't matter that, that some diabetics need that algorithm. And a lot of, a lot of diabetics don't need that algorithm. All the diabetics are put algorithm. on that algorithm. Can you explain uh, what an algorithm is real quick? Oh, an algorithm is if A, then B, then C. It's just, a, you know, if, you know, this is, if somebody has this, they go this pathway. And if they have this, then they, 
There, there, everybody's seen an algorithm. It goes off to one side, and there's a yes, no question there, and it goes off the other side, and yes, no question. And then it tells you what the treatment is. And ultimately, when you look at uh, hospital procedures and policies, the well-trained nurses who go through all that education, the well-trained doctors who go through that education, often can't use their education. They can only do what the hospital policy says they can do. And if they go outside of that policy, they put themselves at risk, their occupation at risk, their Christmas bonus at risk. Um, can you have a natural birth, a hospital, a natural birth in the hospital? The answer is no. It's not even a question, simply because it's not natural for you to get in a car and drive someplace when you're in labor. It changes everything. It changes the, the, the whole hormonal milieu that you develop when you're starting labor. Labor is a, is a primitive brain function. And, it, and in such, it means that your cortical brain has to shut down. And when you're brought back into your cortical brain, your thinking brain, your, your, bodily, your basic bodily functions are, are altered by that. And so when you are startled, when you get in a car and drive to the hospital, when a predator approaches in nature, when the nurse comes in and keeps interrupting you for hospital-dictated procedures like taking your blood pressure or adjusting the monitor or whatever they're doing, they're constantly interrupting you, you can't, you can't have a natural birth because the, the whole hormonal chemical uh, system between you and, you, and your baby is, is messed up. Now, can you have a normal vaginal delivery unmedicated in the hospital? Of course you can. And hospitals aren't all, you know, again, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that you we mentioned before the podcast started. And, and this is not to say that in, at certain times, these things are miracles. They do wonders. And that's my one caveat for the rest of the podcast is that the hospital isn't necessarily bad for all women, but it. It, just by its very nature and the way they do things, it defies mammalian birth because from the moment you get in the car to drive to the hospital until the moment you put your baby in the car seat to drive home, pretty much everything that's done to you is antithetical to nature's design for birth. And if you just think about how a mammal gives birth in the wild or if you have a dog or a cat or a goat or anything else that gives birth, um, you know what I'm talking about. You don't bother them. You leave them alone. Nobody else, no other goats come around and ask the goat how she's doing. Um, yes. Nobody ever reaches in to cut the cord and nobody separates the baby goat from the mother. They don't do that kind of thing. And it's not a sterile procedure. And they don't ask the goat to pee in a cup or change into a hospital gown or sign some papers or, or uh, get an IV or be immobilized. If a goat wants to move while she's in labor, she can move. And, and here's something really amazing. If a goat wants to eat or drink when she's in labor, she can do that too. But when you go to the hospital, a lot of hospital policies will restrict all those things that I just said. And that's what I mean by it's antithetical to nature's design. And when you mess with nature, as you so eloquently said at the beginning, which I love, is that the, the, the meddling or the intervention has to prove its efficacy and safety, not that nature is unsafe. Nature's design is close to perfect. And yes, things go wrong. Things go wrong at home. Things go wrong in the hospital, despite all these medical interventions, probably far more often and be because of them. So that thing. And then um, interesting that you uh, the, that you can relate to what I can relate to 
by the fact that we both lived in both worlds. A lot of people never live in both. But when you've lived in, in one and then gone to the other, and it's usually starting in the hospital model and going home. I don't know too many people that work in the home and then decide they want to work in a hospital. It okay. doesn't really work that way. But I was in the hospital like you for a long time. Uh, for me, it was, I think you were over 10 years, I think. But for me, it, it was, uh, I was 28 years in the hospital and then 12 or 12 and a half years in the home setting. And so I have a unique perspective, relatively unique, um, on, on the differences between the two. So it gives me some credibility, despite a lot of people out there who don't like the fact that I'm speaking, um, because I make them uncomfortable because I'm pointing out realities. Um, and they don't think so. They think, I, you know, somebody like you or me is dangerous. Uh, but that's, again, a, a form of cognitive dissonance because it's uncomfortable for them to think that they have been doing something that's wrong forever. I, I don't know if you want me to go off on this tangent but about cesarean, but you've heard this example because I know you listen to me. But, you know, in the United States, the C-section rate is over 30%. And there's about 4 million babies born, about 3.8 million, but let's use four because it's an easier number. And let's say 30% of them are having a C-section, so that's 1.2 million C-sections a year in the United States, by far the most common surgery performed. And most organizations, including the American College of OBGYN and the World Health Organization, think that the C-section rate should be less than half of that, 10 to 15%. But let's just say for easy math, let's say 15%. Well, if it's 30% and it's 15%, it's supposed to be, that means that out of the 1.2 million women having cesareans, it's 600,000 of them are having unnecessary surgery. Now, that's crazy. And 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 if if 600,000 unnecessary knee surgeries were being done or mastectomies or or even tonsillectomies, um, you know, not only would people be outraged, but insurance companies would be outraged because they're paying for that. Right. But nobody says a peep. But here's the real cognitive dissonance. Because if 600,000 C-sections are unnecessary, as stated by the World Health Organization, um, who's doing them? Because no doctor goes home at night, tells their spouse, hey, honey, guess what? I did two unnecessary C-sections today. So if half are unnecessary, but nobody's doing unnecessary C-sections, you can see why there has to be a cognitive dissonance there. doesn't fit. So the answer is always the other guy's doing the unnecessary ones. But what's the other guy saying? He's saying you're doing the unnecessary ones. So nobody takes responsibility for it. And we end up in a quagmire where we have C-section rates around the world from 30 to 70 some percent. And we just, and because people don't trust the birth model and the birth model is designed for speed and for revenue. And hospitals make more money when you have a C-section. Hospitals make more money every time they do an intervention. On you, there's an RVS code for that. And they charge for that. And I hope I'm not scaring your audience. Um, no. You can edit this out, but if it's scary. No, it's not. And, it, and it, I've, there's nothing that you've said that I haven't either said or alluded to on some level. Um, and so, so really what you're doing, because you're, you're, you're reinforcing what my audience already knows and what I've told them. Um, but, but hearing it from you um, and, and even even for me as well, because we've seen these scary bad things. You know, we're told all the bad things that are going to happen if you dare to have a home birth. We've seen it both ways. We recognize that these things, as you mentioned, usually go well, but occasionally they don't. And that's when you need the medical model. But because we have seen that side, 
And we've seen the other side and we still err, we, err on the side of caution. We err on the side of like, no, home is better. Home is safer actually on a lot of, a lot of um, levels because there's, these things aren't being done to you. So, you know, we, we can appreciate the things that can go wrong. Also, we can recognize them because we know what they look like, but we also can recognize that a lot of these things that we're making them go wrong. So you're not scaring anybody. A lot of my listeners want to believe that home birth is safe, but they are so indoctrinated into what their best friend had and their sister had and their mom had. And, you know, this, you know, if I hadn't had this C-section, I would have died and my baby would have died. And, and that's all they hear because, you know, that's all you see on TV. That's all a lot of people have seen. And they actually, again, buy into it that um, they, they, the cognitive, cognitive dissonance, they're struggling. They want to believe it's safe. But so hearing the same things from you actually is going to help a lot. Um, and, and, and what you said about the cognitive dissonance, it takes an incredible amount of humility and honesty to realize that you were a part of the problem and, and it, and it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process and you you can't just be like, that wasn't me. Yeah. It takes, it takes a while. And then, and like, for me, I learned all these things. I knew they didn't seem right. I, then I went to that job I mentioned and then I'm sitting there going, oh, that's that. Oh, that's that it really is all here. And, and realizing at that point that it's like, I can't be a part of this. I can't be. And now that I know, I know better, I've got to do better. I can't be an accomplice to this anymore. I recognize the, the service that the hospital provides in those few situations that need it. But when you apply that to everyone, then you're going to have all the side effects happening to people that never even needed it to start with. And so, no, you're not scaring. I don't think you're scaring anyone. You're you're helping people realize what they kind of already know. Wasn't that so good? Y'all, I hate having to chop this up, but I know you don't have time to listen to a two-hour conversation. So tomorrow we will pick up right back here where we're leaving off. In tomorrow's episode, we'll talk about a lot, including... Dr. Semmelweis, epidurals, the hormones of labor, and how they play into the purpose of the pain of labor. Yes, yeah, I said that, the purpose of the pain of labor. And we'll even talk about Michelle Odont, another wonderful doctor who has done so much for the world of natural birth. Be sure to turn on your notifications and maybe make a quick reminder on your phone so you won't forget and miss it. If you've enjoyed this, Be sure to let a friend know to listen to, and I will see you right back here tomorrow. Real quick, if today's episode blessed you in any way, would you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a quick five-star written review? It'll take you less than a minute, but it's the best thank you you can give me, and it will help my show to reach more mamas just like you so we can all find God's best for our families. I'll see you right back here in a few days.